Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Monica Mafla, and I am a nurse practitioner at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, Stanford. Today, we will be speaking about rescuing the endangered species, the bedside nurse, with our guests, Kim and Jean. Kim and Jean, please, if you'll introduce yourselves for our audience. Hi, everyone. I am Kim Ortmeyer. I'm the patient experience manager at Levine Children's Hospital and Jeff Gordon's Children's Center. Prior to this role, I was a bedside nurse in the Peds Cardiac ICU and PICU for 20 and a half years. My name is Jean Story, and I am the senior vice president at Children's Health in Dallas. Uh, I oversee the Heart Center and our Center for Cancer and Blood Disorders, our transplant program, our fetal neonatal program, nephrology. It's a lot of programs. Um, and a couple of other things thrown in there. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Kim, maybe you can tell us how you started as a bedside nurse. How did you get into cardiac ICU nursing? Well, I started at Rainbow Babies and Children's Hospital in Cleveland in 2000, and it was a combined PICU, CBICU. And then I went on to travel for seven years. And during my um, travel assignments, I would pick one assignment would be PICU, one assignment would be CB, and it went back and forth until I was at Children's National. It was a combined unit, and they separated um, the CBICU out of the PICU, and that's when I really had to make a decision at that point on what I wanted to do, and I decided at that moment my heart was leaning more towards cardiac ICU. Jean, how did you get into the role you're in now? Where, can you take us back to the beginning of your career? And- yeah, that's a long, long time ago. I started out actually in adult um, cardiac ICU. I should say I first started in adult and pediatric cardiac ICU. They actually went to the same um, unit postoperatively. And then I moved away. It happened to be at the same hospital I trained. And then I moved to, um, of all places, Las Vegas and worked with uh, adult uh, cardiac patients and primarily a post-op cardiac surgical unit and started really missing that pediatric component that I had started with. And another uh, tour took me to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where I then went into a PICU and from there found myself in Dallas. I worked several years at the bedside Um, in a blended PICU, and then when we started to specialize uh, the unit, um, help lead that effort, design our first um, cardiac ICU. We had hired a medical director for the cardiac ICU at the time, Dan Stromberg. And so um, that was really the beginning, and from there I've held several roles as clinical educator, uh, clinical manager, and then director, and that's when we started pulling in all of the um, different services, you know, into a single organizational structure, everything from outpatient to inpatient, the surgery, cath, and the advanced practice people. Excellent. Thank you both for your introductions. So you both came uh, to Miami this year for the 2022 PCICS conference to tell a little bit about your individual stories. I think there's a hot topic in relation to nursing this day and age across the country, whether it's a small cardiac ICU or some of the bigger medical centers. The hot topics from my viewpoint as a advanced practice provider is related to 
education and onboarding, um, retention, and then longevity. Kim, you spoke a lot about your longevity in your career. What do you think helped you to make it to 20 and a half years? And I know that sounds a little bit negative, but that's a long uh, nursing career in an ICU and in a cardiac ICU for most of it. So what, what do you attribute to that, that longevity? I think for me, the constant changing was something new for me. You know, at Rainbows, I was there two years and then I started traveling and at each center, you know, the first after MUSC, I thought I was going to go back. But what I learned from MUSC, it built on the knowledge that I already learned at Rainbows. So at each institution, I found that I would be able to learn more things. So when you talk about education, I think that that is extremely important. I sort of wanted that. I wanted to be the one who could dig in deep and know what was going on with my patient before it would happen. The one that could bring the other nurse in and be like, hey, look at this. I think it might be A, B, and C. And so for me also, I am truly passionate about it. I probably, if this position did not open up for me, um, I might still be at the bedside. Even though I was finding there, it was getting more difficult, I still loved it most of the time. And I think it wasn't about pay. It wasn't about moving up. For me, it was more... I was missing the teamwork. I was missing that camaraderie that I had through most of the 20 and a half years when I could look down the hall and no one was on their phone because they didn't have phones and people would finish their assignment or finish their tasks and then come to the next room and be like, hey, what do you need? Because we all wanted to get done so then we could maybe talk about what we did this weekend instead of scrolling on the phone to see what each other did this weekend. And I found that at the end, I started missing that more and more. But I think that actually led to my longevity because I looked forward. I had a family at home, but I looked forward to my work family because that's what they were, even on my travel assignments. It's so interesting you bring that up because we rely so heavily on technology, but then it works against us in these team dynamics like you're mentioning. And I I can think back to the same thing in my nursing career where when cell phones were just started to become more present in our hands, in our pockets, social media was just, you know, uh, starting up. And we used to be told we had to lock up our phones. We couldn't have them out. And now they're just such a part of our natural life. And as providers, they are too. We're constantly communicating with our other providers. We're constantly communicating with our bedside nurses via other cell phone technology. So I could see how it's a a catch-22 really in our industry. And I think that you make a huge point that it takes away from some of that team building that's happening at the bedside each and every day. And the collaboration. And the collaboration. Yeah, 100%. Jean, do you remember times where um, when you started to think about switching from the bedside and, and getting into leadership and what helped you make that jump or what was there something that pushed you towards leadership that you can recall from that time in your career and, and when you stepped away from the bedside? I don't know if there was a single thing that moved me in that direction what i what i do recall is that i found the opportunity to have a broader and broader and broader impact for what i believed was the right thing for the staff and the patients what i found is that i could 
or I believe didn't seem to be the case, that my credibility as a clinician was needed not only in the cardiac ICU, which is where I provided clinical care at the time, but more broadly. And I think that's when I started to realize that I could have, again, just a broader impact on things that really mattered. And I think the more and more that I interacted with um, those actually above me, I began to learn very quickly the way they viewed the world (laughs) of care delivery and, and how maybe I could help shape and inform those opinions to ensure that, that those at the bedside were getting the tools and the resources that they needed. So that, I just kind of stayed on that, on that path. And I've been very fortunate to have great mentors and partners. And, you know, I don't know that I necessarily pursued that. It just kind of evolved. And so let's fast forward to today and thinking about some of these hot topics being onboarding, being retention. Today in your talk, you spoke a lot about retention strategies, perhaps what you feel are good retention strategies, maybe what others feel are good retention strategies. If you could pick a couple that you could see implemented without any hassle, what might those be? And what or what do you believe is the path that we're taking as cardiac intensive care units or ICUs in general to reach that goal of retaining our nurses? Yeah, I think there are several things, but I think a fundamental component that we we need to address, which I talked about in my presentation this morning, is that providers, nurse practitioners, and physicians are viewed on the revenue side, right? They contribute favorably to the bottom line because they can bill for services. And nursing is wrapped up in labor, which is squarely the biggest expense for any organization. And expenses in general are meant to be contained or reduced, and certainly in times of stress. And what I would offer as just a foundational uh, kind of philosophical approach is that I think there's real value in reevaluating how we quantify the value of nursing care. Now, whether or not frontline nurses and direct care nurses need to be billing, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that there is a they contribute in a favorable way to reducing things like hospital acquired conditions, improving length of stay, you know, rescuing patients uh, before they go on to CPR. So I think foundationally for me, there needs to be a change in how we view nursing workforce. The minute you do that, doors start to open and you start to think about things differently. The second thing that I would say is that we have, we must focus on what most would say the soft skills or the soft stuff, which is really culture, but it is paramount. And I think it's culture at every level. It's nurse to nurse, you know, discipline to discipline, but we really have to spend some time continuing to nurture that culture. Thirdly, I would say just the career development and, and 
investments that we're making in people professionally, right? Allowing people or funding people to come to this conference. One of the things that I'm pretty proud of is that working with our philanthropy group years ago, understanding that education and funding travel and education is something that is a luxury in most hospital budgets. And strategizing with my uh, physician colleagues and leaders, we were fortunate that when we spoke to philanthropists that we had, uh, we spoke about the importance of nursing competencies and education and the fact that we had a dedicated staff. Long story short, we have a nursing endowment set up for nursing education. Um, there are things that I think we can do like that, that that again show not just initial investment and all that is that we provide to somebody just starting their career, but what do we do at the two, at the three, at the five year mark that really they begin to be more confident in themselves and they begin to see a path that they may want to go. And ironically enough, I'm trained as a nurse practitioner and so I very much value that role. However, you know, that's not the only way. Uh, and I, I worry that too many people are going into that role not fully appreciating what that role is, but because they believe it to be the only option. And so I spoke this morning about really differentiating what we say we value most, which is the direct care nurse, and, and showing paths and ways that they can differentiate their career without ever leaving the bedside. I think those are all great points. When you talk about culture and how we need to re-look at culture, whether it be between nurse to nurse and different disciplines, have you been able to implement any strategies in your institution where you've seen a positive culture shift? I know there's a lot of talk about culture in general, and I'm just curious because I think a lot of the listeners would be interested on specific projects or specific things that you've been able to do that have maybe shown some success. And I know that we all strive to do things well, but we can all continue to work on things. I know in my own institution, we're always trying to work on things, but none of us are perfect. Have you seen anything that's shown at least a positive light or a positive step in the right direction for improving culture as of recent? Yeah, this is something that um, actually was started in in Toronto. Uh, I don't know that this was the reason uh, this started. In fact, I'm pretty sure it wasn't, but (laughs) um, it was aimed at team performance. And that was something called a flight plan. Uh, at Toronto Sick Kids, and they would every week spend some time multidisciplinary talking about the cases the the week prior. It wasn't, you know, reviewing data or run charts or improvement projects. It was really an overview of the case. And did that patient move through the system in the most effective, efficient um, fashion? Did their trajectory follow what we anticipated. Did we have the right pre-op diagnosis? Did things go well in the OR? Did things go well post-operatively in the ICU and and the floor? And everyone was able to weigh in and comment that took care of that patient. What that created or allowed was a venue for um, reflection for people to say, you know, I, I, I probably could have done that better. And it really was about the function of the team. I had heard, and many have, 
heard Ed Hickey, who is a cardiac surgeon, speak on that topic. And then when I went to Cincinnati Children's, we adopted that uh, model there. And we have since uh, done that model at, at Children's in Dallas as well. And I will say that it brings intentionality to, in, to discussions. Most importantly, though, it also brings or allows the opportunity to review things that have gone well. And I think really complex cases or cases that move through our system really well or, you know, very quickly, we don't always stop and pause and think about all that we're doing well and focus on things that are only going wrong or the most complex of the complex. And so, again, that is just something off the top of my head that um, is well attended people can attend it virtually. Good conversation, again, focused on team performance, not an individual, but I think it has really helped bring the center-mindedness together. Yeah, and you make a good point on the virtual involvement because where we've taken a lot of steps back in gathering together and being together in the last few years, there's definitely been some positive things that have come out of being able to attend virtually like group discussions like you're referring to where maybe someone doesn't want to come in on their off day or night or whatnot, but they can attend and even listen in. Mm -hmm. I was reading some things about ways to include nursing in group discussion and, and even things like asking they have anything to add on bedside rounds. If there's anything that we're missing holistically that, that the nurse can add, I think we can all learn from their experience at the bedside being there for 12 plus hours and contributing to our team as the provider team when we get further and further away from being the person at the bedside or the leader who gets further and further away that they can help add, which I think can, to your point, kind of add to perhaps improving culture over time. Kim, I was wondering for you, when we talked a little bit about the technology piece, that's also a culture shift. But can you think back to the beginning of your experience that got you so uh, hyped, so to, so to say, on being a cardiac ICU nurse about a, any cultural changes from back then to now that you think would help this era of new bedside nurses? One thing that comes to my mind, and especially as you just mentioned, you know, asking the bedside nurse what her thoughts are is what we do at Atrium Health Levines is we do nurse-led rounds in the morning. We don't have fellows though, so we do have APPs, but the nurse actually reads the sheet, does the history and goes through all the vitals and the labs and all of that stuff. And I think when we do that, I wish more centers would, because what I found was when we first started that here, people were very apprehensive because they were nervous and scared. And what I really found was that some of them didn't understand what they were reading, but what it forced them to do was study up on the normal lab values, what this meant when your lactate started to rise, why it's important that your ionized calcium you know, is not below this level. And when they started doing that and seeing what meds they were on and looking them up, you saw a confidence sort of shift in them into the point that they felt like they were valued and then they actually were better because they actually understood what was happening in front of them. And so I think that is one of the shifts that I would love for us to continue going through. 
But I also wish that before technology, there was a lot more teaching at the bedside. And I don't know, Jane, if you're, you would agree with this or not, but I think, you know, on the downtime, having an APP or a fellow come over, there were times, you know, the surgeon would come over, draw the heart out and say, all right, Kim, follow, take me through what's going on here. I miss that. And I will tell you in the last probably five, six years, I haven't seen that as much. You don't see the attending on the unit as much. They're off. The surgeons, as we just heard a speech pro con, should the surgeon be at the bedside? You know, I don't think they should be at there the whole entire time, but when they call in or come at 6 a.m. and then they leave and you don't really see them again, that's difficult to really understand the process as a bedside nurse. And so I think nurse-led rounds are very important, but I also think that teaching and education at the bedside and not so much on some of the technology would also benefit younger nurses today and even more experienced nurses. Because I think going back and actually getting a refresher sometimes is truly important because there might be one little thing that you missed or two. So it's really interesting that that Kim um, walked through that. I didn't. I didn't pay her to do that. But that is um, absolutely the reason. As I mentioned in my talk today, I touched on it briefly. Was the whole premise for the clinical coach? It's different than a preceptor. It's different. It's very different than an educator. But it is someone who really begins to connect the the clinical dots. Right. The clinical. The physiology to the clinical picture to what are they at risk for, what does it look like, and how can we help prevent that? And once people come off orientation, and especially over these past few years, I think we have people that perhaps weren't onboarded all that well themselves. And we're we're training um, a group of people that just really are not equipped with the same degree of skills and and knowledge just foundationally. When you layer in technology and people are away from the bedside, writing notes, et cetera, et cetera, those kinds of things that people used to learn, right, or seek out in a more intentional way, as Kim just alluded to, have all but evaporated. And so clinical coach is where I try to leverage the expertise of the bedside clinician, regardless of degree, but someone who understands physiology, likes to teach, just really passionate about that and can meet people where they are. The two-year person, the five-year person, and the seven-year person. And we know that tenure does not equate to necessarily clinical expertise. And that's not to say, that's not an indictment. It is just an aha that I had when I was both the educator and then the longer I went in leadership and watching the dynamics and the landscape saying, this is a gap we must fill. And I think, quite honestly, because of the stress that newer folks coming into practice and for several years don't feel real connected or settled or getting that education and gaining that confidence, I think it's also why 
they move on to something else, right? And, and perhaps if there was a different way that we invested in them, you know, it, it might shape them a little differently. I wholeheartedly agree with everything you guys have said. I think that education and focusing on that bedside learning, whether it be a chalk talk, focusing on the two-year person, the new grad, the 20-year person, everyone has something to learn, the new APP, but we have a multidisciplinary responsibility to support that. Mm -hmm. I don't think nursing educators and nursing leadership should primarily be responsible for nursing. I don't think medical leadership should be primarily responsible for APPs or fellows. I think we can all learn from each other. I think that there's nursing leaders and nurses who can teach our advanced practice providers. I think that there is uh, medical team members who can teach nurses, RTs, RT leadership who can teach us all. I think we can all learn from each other. And without that multidisciplinary approach, we're all going to be lacking something because we can all learn so very true. something from so each other. So very true. And, you know, as, as Kim alluded to, and you just reinforced, that was the benefit when it used to happen in a, you know, in a different kind of way. Now we can, we can build that in into our programs and we do, and we have, you know, physicians come and speak and perfusionists come and speak and respiratory therapists and those kinds of things. Um, and we have sessions that are, are open to everyone to, to learn. But I, I agree, it is that cross talk. It's what do I see from my lens? What do you see from your lens? Um, that I think makes us, um, you know, much more equipped. And hopefully with some of the organized talks you're referring to, that prompts some people to just spontaneously get involved because I think that's what we need for the culture shift. That's what we need in the middle of the night for the fellow or the APP who has spare time to come to the bedside and do that teaching that Kim was referring to. And hopefully where we're getting to with these organized work groups is to allow some spontaneous shifts in our culture that hopefully that will help. We would like to take a moment to recognize the sponsors of this episode, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. For over 100 years, Children's Healthcare of Atlanta has endeavored to make kids better today and healthier tomorrow. As the largest cardiac program in the Southeast, one of the top five largest pediatric heart centers in the nation for cardiac intensive care unit and cardiac acute care unit volumes, and one of the top 10 largest pediatric heart centers for heart surgery, catheterization procedures, and transplant volumes, Children's Heart Center provides exceptional treatment for complex heart defects encompassing patients from fetus through adulthood. Offering the only support group of its kind in the nation, Children's Kids at Heart program has served thousands of families, providing education, meals, and emotional support. Through academic partnerships with Emory University School of Medicine and Georgia Institute of Technology, Children's Heart Center is also a national leader in heart disease research while treating more than 40,000 complex congenital cardiac patients annually. In 2025, Children's Heart Center will move to the new 446-bed Arthur M. Blank Hospital, offering more than 20 acres of green space, including walking and biking trails, state-of-the-art patient rooms, and technological advancements allowing for enhanced research, 3D printing, and simulation training. For more information, follow Children's Healthcare of Atlanta on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, or TikTok. So Kim, during your talk, you talked a lot about your personal tie to the congenital heart disease 
world. Would you share with us uh, what that's been like? I think it's really, really important. I think that what you described as a family member would be so great for our audience to hear. Yes. So I um, am married to, so Scott is a um, co-arc, and then he also has a bicuspid aortic valve. When he was 30, he contracted endocarditis from the dentist. So he had strep listeria. And at the time, I was a CVICU nurse at um, Children's National in D.C. We ended up going to Inova Fairfax um, in Alexandria, where we lived at the time, and not knowing that it was endocarditis through an echo showed it. But I think that was the first time that I can say that I was on the opposite side of the bed, where you don't realize how much you actually hear from the nurses that the nurses say. And I know that I was one of them at a time where you would be at the nurse's station or outside of your room and you're just chit-chatting and it's nothing personal, but people hear things. So I would hear, she was a CVICU nurse. How did she not know? Well, I didn't. You know, I didn't, I knew we were both trying to lose weight at the time. You know, he was just doing better at it than me. Little did I know that he was burning a lot more calories um, because of this infection. Then you also hear people that are in the medical community that want to make small talk, like the transporters, you know, oh, sir, you're awfully young to be in here to have open heart surgery. And what I wanted to be like, well, I know he's 30, but we're on number two right now. And so I think... I also then started to notice and pick up, and there were great people there, let me tell you, but the ones that took that extra second to say, hey, Kim, do you need anything? I'm going to get Scott water. Do you need anything? And it's for a second when you feel like no one sees you, when you feel like you're almost in this alone. And yes, it is all about him. But at the same time, I was trying to maneuver in my head that we've only been married a year he might die from this. I should have known, how come I didn't know? And what should I have done to maybe prevent this? And to have that nurse just look over and say, do you need a glass of water? It was almost like she says, I see you. I see you over there. I have your back. And so moving on, he did great from that surgery. Um, And then we knew we picked a tissue valve. And so I mentioned that in my talk that it was hard when I know the procedures. I know the Ross. I know the mechanical. I know the tissue. And so later on in life to have people come back and say, well, why did you do that? Why would you not choose the Ross? Well, he was 30 at the time. You know, he's on the cusp of when things actually go right or wrong. And to have people come back, sometimes I think they forget that in that moment, I had five days of oh my gosh, this is where we are right now. And then there had to be a decision by Friday because they needed to go in. And so I think, again, watching how we talk to people, watching what we say, there's no ill intent. But I think sometimes we as healthcare providers feel we know everything. And that's why I said in my talk, I will never judge someone's situation because you have never walked in their shoes to actually know what's else is going on. Lead us to um, over a year ago and we went for an echo and got the call and he was in some heart failure. And so with the tissue valve, we all know that that's going to occur one day. And that's why 
many people don't pick, you know, the tissue valve and they go a different route. But at the time with a mechanical valve and Coumadin and being 30, that's like, okay, you're not going to be able to really ski again. You're not going to, we were thinking more, what can we do to maximize life? Because I think that's what's most important, not maximize the time you're here on earth, but what can we do so you can still live your life as a normal 30 year old man? And so we ended up finding out that at this time with where he was, he was going to need a valve, a root, and part of his um, ascending aorta. So a, a pretty major surgery. With being a bedside nurse and knowing people that I know, reaching out, trying to see where's the best center that you can go to. But this time, I will tell you, it got a little more complicated because at this point in our life, he's older now. And then I have a 10-year-old and a 12-year-old now. So it wasn't just about what decision I would make. It was what decision would I make for our family if we couldn't. And so we ended up going to Mayo in Rochester, and we were there for about two weeks, um, pretty major surgery to fly home um, right after. It makes me laugh because I used to see these kids who would come, you know, to Boston or they would come, you know, to D.C. from other states or other countries. And we'd finish their surgery and put them on a plane and go back. And I never really grasped how hard that is and how stressful it is on everyone involved, but also on the person that just had open heart surgery. And when we were flying back, I literally turned to my mom who came with us and we bought Scott a first class ticket. And my mom and I were like four rows behind him and regular and coach. And I looked at my mom and I said, I could never imagine flying right now after what he went through. And my mom turned to me and with tears in her eyes, she said, I can't believe you let him get on this plane, Kimmy. And I was like, I know. And so we got home and he was having a lot of anxiety and he was, you know, having a lot of pain. And what I love that Dr. Schwartz said to him is he said, Scott, many are going to tell you, you shouldn't be on these pain meds right now. And many are going to tell you, you, you made it. You're, you shouldn't be having this much anxiety. But how many people do you know after open heart surgery, two weeks later, it was actually 12 days, get on a plane and fly back to where they are with the turbulence, with the landing, with all of that. So I think that compassion that Dr. Schwartz also showed us and my family was that we need to be more like that. We need to look at every situation, not group them in these buckets that sometimes we do, but look at every situation as different and treat them with what will work for each individual and each family. I think you made such excellent points, many. I wish we could discuss them all. But I loved how you took what you experienced. And like so many of us have our own biases against many things that we can admit. But most importantly, as providers and as bedside team, I think we always target the other medical professionals that come to us as patients. And we think, oh no, that's our first thought. Oh no, the wife is a CVICU nurse. Oh no, the dad is a cardiologist. And we come with that bias. And if we can step back and hear your perspective, like we just did, it helps it can help us as providers and as 
as bedside teams and all of us as the multidisciplinary team, really just step back and think about your experience, what you're going through and how we can help make that better. Cause that's what we're really here for. And I think that's why everyone in our, in our profession signed up to do this, went through all the schooling that it took to do this was to actually help you not to, to step back and, and get into our own head about how that's going to make our day or night harder. Cause that, it's not what it's about. It's about your husband. It's about your child. It's about your mom or dad. And so I really appreciate that perspective that you bring. Okay. So as we start to wrap up here, I just wanted to give you each a platform to add anything that you might have on how we're going to rescue, in quotes, this endangered species of the bedside nurse. Jean, you made a comment during part of your talk today about how this was an already fragile system that then we just went through a COVID pandemic and that perhaps the COVID pandemic was a catalyst that broke down our already fragile system and not really the cause. Yeah, I certainly COVID, you know, imparted um, stressors on our workforce that we, we had never experienced previously. That I, I I don't dispute um, at all. But what I would say is that there have been long-standing challenges that we have been talking about for years. The concern around the pipeline of nurses, the projected deficit in nursing in in nurses to cover the mounting or the growing need, right? Because of an aging workforce and we can do things today that we we couldn't have done, you know, as recently as five or six years ago. And so those kinds of things, we we knew that and and we also saw the generational changes coming into the workforce as a small percentage and then half a percentage, you know, or half of the, the workforce and, and to becoming the predominant workforce. And, and my point is, is I don't think we were out in front of those things. We weren't thinking about how to engage them differently. We weren't thinking about how to retain them in, in, a, in a very different way, um, in a proactive fashion. And so there were just many things that I think Again, the things that the frontline nurses have been clamoring for that gets bundled around respect and voice and value, those things have been voiced for several years, right? Going back to, again, I, I talk about the healthy work um, um, environment standards that were put out in 2005. and. And I just don't think we have nurtured or embedded firmly some of those things so that we were more solid when something as devastating as COVID hit. I think we've learned a lot. And I think we are actively working quickly um, to rescue the profession. And I, I always see any big challenge as a, as a fresh opportunity. And I really think the opportunity now is to really bring home how to quantify and value um, the contribution of 
of nursing um, and this whole concept. When I saw that posting on Becker's and then I started digging, like that is what I've been talking about for so long. <laughs> um, I think it is a game changer. Well, thank you both for joining me today. Do either of you have any last little tidbits you want to leave us with about this topic we've been talking about? I completely 100% agree with Jean and what she is saying. I think as recently of just leaving the bedside, not even two years ago, I think the bedside nurse always hears the negative. We always hear what we did wrong, what we could do better, how, what we should wear, what we shouldn't wear. You know, you have to work 12 hours. And I think it is generational, Jean. I think you are saying it that this, this new generation, 12 hours is not working for them. And I will tell you at 45, 12 hours was getting hard for me after three 12s in a row. I sometimes looked like I was 90 as I was getting up from the couch to just go to the fridge. And my kids used to laugh at me. My husband would laugh at me. But maybe we need to rethink that. Maybe we need to rethink the 12-hour shifts. Maybe we also need to rethink of maybe a day of gratitude, thankful Thursday, where how nice would it be if the attending just walked in your room and said to you, Jean, you're doing an excellent job. Thank you for taking care of that patient today. What those little things do, we started a thing at my institution that I started was I Make a Difference Award. And it's an award that you get for the people that constantly go above and beyond and do little things of gratitude to help the bigger whole of the institution. And I will find you some people, some of these bedside nurses would start crying and say, this is wonderful. I didn't even know you saw that. And I was like, yes, we do see those things. Instead of complaining about the trash being overflowing, why don't you just empty it and then put it out and then say, oh, thanks, we got it. And so I think those types of things, the gratitude, the thinking about different hours for the workforce, and also just respecting each other in a way where we maybe sometimes put the phones down and we actually talk. And I say, Jean, how was your day today? Instead of finding out that Jean had a horrible day on Facebook or Instagram. Such a great point to leave us with. Well, thank you both for speaking with me today. We really enjoyed having you on the podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for listening to the PCICS podcast. Please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, PCICS.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know, by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.